Hi, I'm Dave Weld with Dave Weld and the Imperial Flames on Delmark Records. And now you're listening to Talking Blues. Dave, um, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to see you in Chicago. Um, how are things in Chicago these days? Well, it's hectic. That's good. We're always hustling for gigs, and we're getting them and playing them. And uh, the city is, it's still thriving, but you have to choose your battles. Because uh, there are so many musicians. I mean, there's so many bands competing for the same uh, small amount of really blues gigs. And so you have to get you know, your homestand. And so our homestand would be Buddy Guys. Right. Legends. And uh, many people have a homestand at the Kingston Mines. Uh, the Blues on Halstead is closed. So a lot of those musicians lost their homestand. But Blue Chicago is still open. And many musicians have a homestand there. Can I ask... When, when you say homestand, if you say um, you play at Buddy Guy's, does that restrict you from playing other places? No, it's it's more or less that you're on rotation. Right, okay. And, and that you're going, you know you're going to be working there and they like you and you like them. And uh, you, you're popular there and uh, it, it just works out for the band and for the venue. And so... Uh, yeah, you can, you know, play anywhere you want. <laughs> Heck, we play down the street from Buddy Guys at a place called Reggie's. And uh, it's a nice little place, and it's, but it's no competition because Buddy <laughs> has its own crowd. Tell me about that crowd. How, how do you view that? I mean, I presume it's tourists, but how do you see that crowd? What is that crowd to you? It, it is tourists, but... Most more than that, they're bona fide uh, blues fans. You know who who come to a, a destination blues location, and uh, they are out of towners. But there is also equal amount of not quite equal, but there's uh, a, a major amount of Chicago residents that come there too, and people that like the blues that live in Chicago. And, and they're just as prevalent there too. Because when, uh, when we play, sometimes Johnny or uh, Daryl will come up and announce us. And part of their announcing routine is saying, okay, who's from uh, another state? And they'll call out the states. Okay, who's from another country? They'll call out the countries. Okay, who's from Chicago? Okay, and they'll call out. And so, uh, you do get to know your audience pretty well. It's a friendly place. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of talent. And every time we play, for the past six months, Buddy has got up there with us. And that's okay. nice. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you when, when I was down there, you were playing at the Loft Hotel? Yeah, it's a nice place off of Michigan Avenue. 
it's not a blues club, but we play in the lounge or in, in the lobby actually. And it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of uh, young people there and they, they, they like uh, activity and the, they're usually getting a room so that they can go and uh, see the, the clubs in the city and go clubbing and then come back and sit in the lounge and listen to us. Yeah, and it's fun. Right. So you'll get all kinds there. <laughs> uh, and not necessarily only tourists, locals as well. Yeah, a lot of locals go downtown to to get away from their their you know their day to day routine and get a room and uh, probably get away from the kids. <laughs> Tell me how you first got into the blues. There was a uh, I mean it's it's an old story I tell, but there was a a, a, a player downstairs uh, a wind up, and uh, it was. And, and there was a little, sm a small collection of 78s. And, and uh, I, I used to wind it up and play this one uh, record over and over called the Teddy Bear Blues. And, and it was a blues, but it was kind of, you know, not Dixieland, but I can't describe that style. It was from about 28 or 32 in, in between. And, uh, I looked it up. It's on YouTube, you know, and it's, and it's cute. You know, it, it was just something that attracted me. And then, you know, and eventually I broke it, you know, I wound it too hard and broke the spring, you know? Uh, so, but, uh, so I, uh, then as a teenager, uh, well, you know, like 12 or something, my brother's friends were in high school. And they're a couple of years older than me. And I had, uh, I had bought some John Mayall records and, and, uh, they saw them and they said they wanted them and they trade me. And what they traded me for was uh, big city blues by Howlin' Wolf and black Cadillac blues by lightning Hopkins. And those two records were just incredible. I mean, I, I still listen to them to this day. How old were you at this point? About 12, maybe okay. 11. Did you know the significance of Chicago blues? Like, what did the blues mean to you other than just music? I, I did not know the history. And, and I had to hear the words. I had to see the words McKinley Morganfield on the back of album covers and, and look it up and say, who is McKinley Morganfield? And, and, and that's how I found out about Muddy Waters. And then, you know, I go into the record store and I'd see Muddy Waters and, and, and buy it, you know, and it was a classic chess recording, you know, with uh, Little Walter and uh, uh, Jimmy Rogers and, and Muddy and, and uh, his, you know, whichever bass guy had, had a couple okay. during that time. And that to me, and then I really started progressing into the blues. And then, of course, I did buy Johnny Winter's first album. And, and it was really good. And, and I really liked, and I, I wondered, well, who the heck is Walter Horton? And uh, 
eventually, uh, some years later, I went down to Lincoln Avenue and, and met him and saw him. I, I presume blues came before you started playing guitar, or am I incorrect to assume that? Yeah, what happened was uh, The Who came out with a record called Tommy. Yep. And I bought it. I couldn't stand it. And from that point on, I only purchased blues records. Wow. For the rest of my time. <laughs> and and, and uh, I bought, first thing I bought was both the BBs live, live at the Regal. And uh, one had piano and one had the organ. And uh, it was it was great. You know, I just, I did buy a couple rock records after that. Not too many. You know, but I really, yeah, that's when I, I doubled down on the blues idea. And then I, I went off to school in New Mexico. At this point, have you started playing guitar yet or not? No. Okay. I went off to school in New Mexico and uh, I went with my high school sweetheart. And when I got there, she dumped me. And so uh, I, I, I went off campus and got a place. And one of my roommates came in with a Guitar Slim album. You know, and uh, uh, it blew my mind too. And the things I used to, you know, the things I used to do and uh, it, it was wonderful. And I started studying the blues then and then that's when I bought my guitar. And that was about 70, 71. I bought my first acoustic, I think. And I, I also ran into a book, How to Play the Blues by Brownie McGee. And, and he, you know, it was cool. <laughs> it, it showed, you know, it showed me, you know, if I could do it, if I could execute it, that was blues. You know, it showed me the patterns. Tell me what you were going to school for in New Mexico. Uh, journalism. And my, my major was history. Oh, with the thought of maybe teaching? I, you know, I was a lost soul. Uh, I just didn't, uh, I didn't want to go to work. And I liked reading history, but I didn't really want to teach. I just wanted to go to school and uh, probably smoke some weed. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. Okay, tell me about that one night in the desert with your six pack. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I graduated and uh, things were going bad and uh, I couldn't get work. Uh, I really didn't know how to work, you know, as far as I, I just couldn't get there wasn't much work out there at that time. And uh, I was broke and and uh, my girlfriend, had another the, the next girlfriend had broke up with me and I was out there and, and, and then on a, a night just parked in the desert listening to, uh, I think I was drinking a uh, Bergemeister beer. And uh, this faint crackling Howlin' Wolf song came over the radio. And it was just incredible. It just rocked my world, you know? And, and then uh, I went over to somebody's house and, and, and they had Hound Dog Taylor's first album. And we played it and and this rocked my world and and i decided i need to go home i need to go to chicago you know and 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 see the blues and, and hear this 
you know, all this stuff. Of course, I was, I had taken lessons in New Mexico all during my college years with uh, Kurt Black, a guy that was a jazz guitar player from New York City. And he was a uh, Benny Carter's guitar player. And he was also a sub for Grant Green in New York City. He subbed for oh. Grant, yeah. And then he started the Ann Arbor School of Jazz. And then they must have been getting close to him because he ran to New Mexico. Because what I found out later is he'd, he'd robbed a bank in New York City, in New York somewhere, and, and a, a guard had got injured. Uh, shot or something and he was on the run for bank robbery so uh, that's what he was doing down there 40 miles from the border of Mexico and I saw the little ad in the paper it said learn jazz and blues and uh, he was really you know he was talented he was over my head but he did teach me harmony and he taught me you know the scales on on the one through eight you know and to harmonize the chords and how to resolve chords. And so this is, you know, a good basis for me ever since. And, and, he, and he taught me a lot of good inversions. He taught me the ninths, the sixth, the seventh, you know, that was my good start. But my second good start would be going back to Chicago and, and then hooking up uh, with blues guys you know, from, from my father's home. Before you left Chicago, had you had much exposure to live blues? No. Uh, when I was in maybe pre-high school, we, we got in a bunch of kids, got in a car, and we went to see James Brown. And that was, that was incredible. I mean, he was in, uh, I can't remember which arena he was in, but it was a totally black audience. And he was totally in his element. And, and, you know, when they threw the cape on him, you know, and he, he threw it off and I just, you know, and, and the music was so good, you know. And so, you know, I was a big fan, you know, it was, it was wonderful. So you decided to go back to Chicago to go see blues, to go play blues? Yeah, I did start sitting in and I was terrible. You know, I was really terrible. And so, they didn't like me so well on the north side because I couldn't really play very well. But on the west side of Chicago, they welcomed me with open arms. You know, they just said, you know, he is who he is. He, he is what he is. He loves us. So we love him. Okay, so I have a vague idea of what each different sides means, but can you as somebody who's lived it and who, who knew that scene intimately back then, and I don't know if it's still the same, but can you describe what the South Side, West Side, and the North Side Blues, how it was different and what characteristics each had? Well, yeah, because nothing's the same right now. Right. Uh, uh, I, I, the North Side had some uh, real blues joints, uh, but, but uh, it would be mixed crowd in there and and it would be uh whites and blacks and they had uh, big johns on armitage you know where uh, paul butterfield was and and they had the wise fools uh and and they had uh, the beginning of the mines and they had blues uh 
oh, I can't recall it. The first blues on Halstead, it was elsewhere, elsewhere on Lincoln. And that was a big hangout. It was North Lincoln and it was a big hangout. And what would happen would be uh, guys, and these had to be more well-known guys, uh, would come from the south side or the west side where they lived, you know, and come play, you know, and play gigs. And that's where I met Walter Horton. That's where I met Floyd Jones. That's where I met, I sat with blind John Davis, who was fantastic. And, and uh, you know, you sit down and then you watch them play and then they come and sit down with you and have a beer. And it, it was really great. And it was a mixed audience. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the West Side. The West Side was a, a black audience. And there were little clubs that kept the uh, Christmas lights up all year in the, in the club. And uh, the one I went to, my second gig was the 1815 Club. That, and, and it was uh, very friendly. This was owned by Eddie Shaw. Yeah, that's when it was owned by Shaw. And, and the band was uh, Hubert and uh, Chico, Detroit Jr., and uh, uh, Shorty and Lafayette Gilbert and, uh, and myself. And, and, and that, well, they let me sit, you know, and play quiet chords behind them, you know. And then and eventually I got to solo and stuff, you know. And then they'd, they'd bring up anybody who came by, you know, they knew who to call up. A lot of times it was uh, uh, Maxwell Street Jimmy came up. And, and, and a lot, of, you know, a lot of other guys. You know, and, and Rush, Otis Rush came up, you know, and stuff like that. And then after everybody started coming up, then it was Eddie Shaw's turn, you know. So the sets were about two, two and a half hours long. And uh, Eddie would come up then and he'd put himself in the center stage so he'd be the biggest, you know, thing. And he'd play uh, Can't Stop Loving You, you know. It would be like for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah and he'd work it you know he'd go in the audience and he'd he'd just work it and it was a, it was a nice thing though I, th I think of west side and i think of like west side soul and and you mentioned otis rush and i think of magic uh magic sam but it was musically different from north to the west to the south well yeah because uh it was good in the in the north side it was usually just a combo you know uh, the four piece or so, to me, what I, what I saw, you know, and, and that include in, and so it was the same, you know, the same, you know, different guys, you know, a lot of South siders, not so much as the West side, but uh, they would come, you know, like uh, Smokey Smothers and, and uh, uh, guys like that. And it, it, it was good. You know, you would have uh, good South Side blues on the North Side. And of course, that's where I met J.B. Hutto on the, on the North Side. I met him at the Wise Fools Pub. And he had uh, Lee Jackson was in the band. I'm not sure who he had on bass and drums, but I'll never forget Lee Jackson. You know, he was damn good guitar player. And he had this way of... Uh, taking the feedback, you know, JB would play the show and close and then leave the stage to Lee Jackson. 
Lee Jackson would take this feedback and make it resonate, you know, and uh, everybody hung their mouths open, you know, and it was good. And then I, he'd come out and uh, sit at the bar, JB, and he was so friendly to me. You know, he was just a nice guy. And, and, and just, you know, any, you know, anything you wanted to know, if he knew it, he'd tell you about it. And, and so I called Jim O'Neill uh, from Living Blues Magazine, he said, get an interview, you know? And so I went to JB's house and did that interview. And I did, I got made the cover story of uh, Living Blues with this J.B. Hutto interview. Had you done much um, journalism? Well, I guess you went to school partly for journalism, right? I had, This was my second guy. The first guy I did a story on was uh, Gatemouth, Gatemouth mm. Brown. And I went from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I traveled to uh, Winnemucca, Nevada in my old 67 Ford. And uh, I went to interview him up there. And that, that's a whole story, you know. Well, do tell. Well, I mean, it's a big adventure, you know, because uh, at the time I was smoking weed, you know, and I didn't think, you know, well, I better hide that, you know. But Gatemouth was, I didn't know, but Gatemouth was smoking it too, you know. It was this big thing. And so uh, we did this interview. And I had a room. I don't know how. I, I, yeah, I took some money and got a room there. And I, he, it was a, a lounge show for Gatemouth. You know, like in a casino where he'd uh, he play four or five nights a week. He had a band from Mississippi. And he played, uh, you know, You're Cheating Hard. And he played mandolin, violin, guitar. He played a lot of stuff. And he took me out in his car and we went up a mountain and he's kind of a wild guy he, he was driving real fast up that mountain and uh, the car was on two wheels and his hat flew out the window and down the side of the mountain and uh we made it back but uh, it just proved to me he was you know a wild dude <laughs> and, he, and he was a good guy though and he told me in-depth interview about uh his original bands and uh, Okie Dokie Stomp, which was his big hit, and playing with these uh, orchestras. Because the first time he got up, he was at a T-Bone Walker gig, I think the Peacock, uh, down in Texas. Right. And, and T-Bone got sick. And Gate, Gate got up and knocked everybody out and that was his big start and so you know that was a big deal mm. and he he started recording for duke and the uh, okie dokie stomp was a big hit you know but he went from there and moved to new orleans and then he also moved to northern uh new mexico farmington he was living up in farmington when he was up in winnemucca nevada and so I interviewed him and then went home and uh, there was a cow on the road going down a mountain and I, my, I had bad brakes so I couldn't stop. It was laying down and I hit it and uh, uh, I was stuck on top of the cow. And then somebody said, well, we're going to call the police. You know, well, you know, 
I didn't knock it down, you know, but then somebody came and helped me push it off there. And so then I was kind of running and I was sleeping in the desert at night and I made it back to uh, Las Cruces. And that's when my girlfriend told me, you know, when you left, uh, Rusty came by and he's been staying with me. <laughs> yeah, so it was a rough trip home, you know. Did you did you ever think about pursuing the journalism, these interviews and, and interviewing these people? Well, I did Gatemouth and JB. Right. I mean, those two are pretty amazing um, catches. Like, did you did you want to pursue that any further or? At that time, he started uh, working with me, JB. And, and so my first gig was with the House Rockers on at Sweet Peas Lounge on, uh, I think, 43rd. I forget. Sweet Pea had a bunch of different places, but it was a homestand for Brewer Phillips and Ted Harvey, Hound Dog Taylor's guys, the House Rockers. It was the, their homestand after Hound Dog died. And so uh, I went there and I'd, I'd sit in every weekend. You know, I was kind of like the unwanted pest. Can I ask, how were you accepted? Obviously, you were accepted by those two, but what, how were you accepted by the, the crowd or the bar? They liked the it. It was a bar and then a music room right next to the bar. So it was two rooms. And they were both packed all the time. and. They, they liked me. You know, if I could have done more, you know, musically, it would have been better. But they did give me seven or eight bucks a night to come down. Uh, you know, Brewer and Ted. And it was real good learning for me. There was a, a one guy who was pissed off. I don't know what he was pissed off about. He was mad that I was white and he wanted... He did want to kick my ass and uh, they surrounded him and got him out of there, you know? And so I was welcome and there were shake dancers too. But that was more of an exception, right? It was the exception. Like you were welcome most of the time. People had no issue with you. Yeah. And, and I was in all those ghettos and uh, I was never robbed and I was never threatened. Uh, no gun pointed at me or a knife. And I was always walking around with a guitar. So, <laughs> you know, some, you know, once somebody shouted across the street, you know, we could take that guitar. You know, and, uh, but uh, I just kept walking and nothing came of it. Were you scared? Uh, no, no, never I was. I guess you're not a small person either, right? I, I presume you can take care of yourself. Oh, I was like, I was looked like a child. I, I was so young looking for my age, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I was what, 19 or 20. And I looked like, you know, they carved me for alcohol. You know, I was just, I looked young, but, uh, you know, they like musicians and they know I'm down there. They know I'm down there to learn. Right. We skipped the South side. Sure. Tell me about your your perception or how you saw the Southside clubs or the Southside music. Uh, they're a little more sophisticated, more uh, 
uh, there were black and a few, you know, white fans, you know, you know, such as, uh, you know, O'Neill or Dick Sherman, you might see Dick Sherman or Amy O'Neill or Felix might be there. Uh, Justin O'Brien or uh, uh, Paul, who used to play with left-handed Frank, you know, guys, you, you'd see some people there, you know, but they'd be in there for the same reason as you. And uh, it was nice, you know, and, but they were a little more, you know, smoother on the south side and <laughs> the west side it was just you know full out you know they were just down home just completely down home and, and why is it that it was difficult for you to get gigs on the north side i, I couldn't play very well i, I couldn't oh. yeah i mean I, I i couldn't play very well and you know and also there was it was cliquish those that had an in with a, a black leader such as Jimmy uh, Jimmy Walker, you know, or uh, which that was Pete Walker. That was Pete Pete's gig. Pete Crawford was with that band, and uh, and then whoever had a band, you know, stuck with their band over there. You know, there there wasn't as much intermingling as there was on the south and the west side. You know, because uh, it was one thing, you know, it was just, you know, you would, it was more clicky, you know, to an extent. It was, they're still friendly, you know, right. but it was more of a click. And I, I wasn't in the click. So you start playing with the house walkers. Are you now thinking this is what you want to do? Uh, I just wanted to play, you know, because I was working a, a day job in a factory. You know, I, I wasn't a professional, uh, you know, even though I had a degree in journalism and history, I was, you know, I tried that route. I couldn't get a job as a reporter. I couldn't get a job at a corporate or uh, so I had to pay off my college loan. So I got factory jobs and I got moving, moving jobs where I was a mover. Right. And at night I would go to this over to sweet, you know, sweet peas and jam with uh, Ted and Brewer and Ted got stabbed in the throat by his wife. So he was laid up and that was after almost a year playing there and he was laid up and that kind of broke up the band. Uh, it didn't kill him, he, you know, he, uh, he had a breathing tube in the hospital and I brought him a, a copy of Living Blues magazine. And he, he liked that. But him and his wife, Susie, got back together, of course. So, but it's interesting that I knew Ted Harvey. Because then, because uh, Ted, after, later on, Ted became the first drummer for the Imperial Flames blues band, uh, Ted Harvey. And you couldn't find a better guy. You know, what a drummer, what a shuffle man. What a snare man. And so I went from there, I went to the 1815 club in, uh, on, on West Roosevelt Road in the West Side. And they were very friendly. And they let me sit in. I, brought, I had a little, little box amp I brought. And they let me set it up on stage. And uh, you know, every so often I would fumble through a solo of some sort. And, uh, and I was getting better at that time, though. And, and 
they brought all those stars up. And uh, I remember Otis Rush looked over at me, said, uh, your third string's out of tune. You know, <laughs> you know and, and I go, oh, oh yeah, okay, sorry, I got it, you know. He had a good. He said, "Sorry, man. I just got a good ear, you know." And, and uh, do you remember a time when you thought, "I finally belong here"? When you looked around and thought, "I'm good enough, and I've been accepted by everybody." Yeah, it was. A, it was the eighteen fifteen club, because it because Chico and Jewtown Burke were doing recordings on the north side on on. Yeah, they had some studio in Evanston, I think. And they invited me to come record. Not, not a, you know, uh, they wanted to feature themselves. Chico featured himself on five or six numbers and uh, Two Tom featured himself as a harmonica player and singer on uh, another five or six. And I was backup guy and they got myself, Shorty, Chico played drums. Boston Blackie was there. And, and uh, eventually, that music was picked up by Bob Cortor and released on Bob's label as a West Side Blues Party, I think. And uh, yeah, and so, you know, uh, and of course, I thought I was better than I was, you know, which gave me the nerve to get up, you know, but. I had a lot to learn. And I asked Hubert to give me guitar lessons. He said, no, <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm not going to give you guitar lessons because, because kids asked me before. And uh, I think one of the guys from earth, wind and fire had asked him for guitar lessons. And when Hubert came around to play on the stage with them, they ignored him, you know, something like that, you know, and so uh, he said no, but uh, J.B. Hutto said yes. And, and then, because I'd been there about a year, and Eddie Shaw's son started coming around, Van, mm -hmm. and he wanted to be in the band, and they wanted to start touring. And uh, Eddie said, uh, I'm going to make a change, Dave. You know, I'm going to use my son now. You know, and it broke my heart, kind of. But first, first thing I did was go over to JB's house and he saved me. He, you know, he rescued me. He gave me a place to play every Tuesday at his house. Cause when he was off tour, he used me as a rhythm man. And then he, he played rhythm for me so I could be a lead man, you know? And, uh, well, tell me about that transition. I mean, from a, from a kid who wasn't very good to somebody who became a little more confident. Um, how did you make that leap to become the leader? Well, uh, well, I wasn't the leader. Uh, I was a guy that thought he could be a leader, but wasn't qualified at that time. But that comes later. But JB, he, he made me play rhythm and lead. And, and, and so and sing a little too, but, and that was tough. That was tougher than uh, guitar for me. And, 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 but JB was pretty persistent. And he, he told me, you know, he showed me about 
the discipline and the dream and, and the uh, what to expect in a band. And he told me about, they're going to tell you to quit. Don't ever quit. And you can make it. And which actually had been told to me before by, Hugh, uh, by Chico Chisholm in the 1815 club. Because I had a 1954 Guild uh, guitar. It was a semi hollow, it was a hollow body. It had uh, some soapbox, soap, soap bar pickups in it, uh, the P90s. And he, you know, Chico kept pointing at that. He said, you know, because he knew how cheap it was, you know, he said, with that guitar, you can make a million dollars, Dave. A million dollars can be made with that guitar. You know, and that was kind of a, it was kind of like a, a rags to riches thing that they talk about over there. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. Uh, it was like how to make, you know, make, you know, influence people and make friends type of speech. And they all believed it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there playing. He really believed it. What would your idea of making it, what would that have been back then? Because you saw what their lives are like, right? Like yeah. all these people you admired, like Hubert and JB, you know what their lives are like being a musician. And I presume you had a pretty good sense of what, what it meant to be a blues musician. So with that in mind, what was making it? Uh, getting a, a gig in a good band, getting a gig in a good band and, uh, where I fit. Uh, and that came, uh, because I didn't think, you know, I would be a band leader, but I got the gig in a good band when I, uh, met little Ed and Pookie at JB's house. At a rehearsal day, they were they were there one day, and and then it turns out that JB was going on the road. What JB was doing was handing me off to his uh, his nephews, because I didn't know because JB had taken me and gotten me so far, and JB had known you know because JB had helped Little Ed start his group. They he JB had used them sometimes, you know, to back him up. And, and uh, sure enough, you know, uh, you know, Ed said, well, you want to start playing? I go, sure, let's do it. You know, and, and this was more along my lines. They're all my age. We're all learning. We all had the old guys telling us we can't make it and that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. <laughs> they had, you know, like uh, all the old guys saying, you know, because I was playing me and Ed liked Jimmy Reed lumps. We all liked the lumps and we liked that kind of blues. And then, so, you know, the older guys, no, you should be playing ninth chords behind him. You should be chording behind him. And no, you're not doing it right, you know. And we wanted to play the way we wanted to play. And it was really house rock and blues. You know, that's what we wanted. And then we were all of a like mind. And, and so, that was really making it. And so we played all the gigs on the West side, Boss Joe's, you know, we played the Green Door, we played uh, the Garfield, 
we played the Casablanca at 20th and Pulaski. And, uh, and then I brought him up on the north side. I got him a gig at the Wise Pools. And unfortunately, it was for to raise money for JB's headstone because mm -hmm. it was 83 and JB died. And so, and so we got, so we started playing the north side. And uh, Bruce came in to see us at the Blues on Halstead. I remember that. I'll never forget that. At that time, we were playing double night blues. We'd be with uh, Hip Linkshame, would be the other band, or Johnny Littlejohn. And it would be us, be myself, Ed, and Pookie, and for a while, Louie, and then George. No, it was George and then Louie. And, and then uh, Bruce had an idea of bringing us in as the new Blue Bloods with uh, all the young guys that were just starting to crop up around town. And are, are you feeling like the new kids on block? I mean, not to use that term, but you know what I mean? Like, are you guys feeling like you're changing things and there's, is there a buzz around what you're doing? Uh, there was a buzz. We just didn't know about it. We just, you know, um, we just, because we're just going from gig to gig, and Ed is moving and and uh, moving from place to place as far as a home. And so things, and we're all driving beaters, you know, that wouldn't work, you know, and on, on bald tires, you know, and uh, up and down the West uh, Lake Street, we're getting seven, eight dollars a guy. And, and And for a long time, but we liked it. And then we did that recording for Bruce Ruffhausen, and it was great. And we got a lot of attention. And we went over to Europe, uh, Holland, for one night, and then came back, and it wow. was it was great. Oh, tell me about that experience. Oh uh, well, he just decided to. Bruce did it. He was our manager, and he went with us. And, and uh, we got 500 a guy for that one night in Holland. Wow. And he, just, and he, he, Bruce told me I decided just to spread things out. And uh, we just uh, started to do little tours in different places. And I started having problems at that point. Uh, Ed was drinking too much and using too much dope. And uh, he was starting to mess up gigs. And also, I wanted to start playing my own songs. Because when we had got together, I thought I was going to be the leader. But it turned, and Ed said, well, let's call it Little Ed and the Blues Imperials. I go, okay. And it turns out Ed was the righteous leader. Ed was the real front man and, and he was great. And he brought me a lot of experience and a lot of gigs, but I just wanted to, I ended up telling Ed I was sick and I couldn't make it. A couple nights, two or three nights, maybe four over a, a half a year. And the real reason, cause I wanted to stay home and play my songs. Did you know at this point, when you say you wanted to play your songs, did you know 
Um, did you have a sense of who you were and what you wanted to do and what these songs would be? Yeah. I want, you know, I felt like I had, I had rhythm patterns that nobody else had. And I wanted to make them into songs and that, that they would someday be my, uh, my savior. You know, that, that's how people would know me. And so then, but then that little passed and then I got back with that and we played about another year and we did a lot of work together. Uh, and then he started touring more to the East Coast. And what happened to me is I was working for Sears and they gave me a raise. And so I was making 600 a week take home in those days after taxes. And I had a building, I had a three flat, which I had to pay for. So I just said, well, you better get somebody else. And you know. How hard of a decision was that? It was terrible. I wanted it both ways, but but I couldn't have it both ways. So you decide that traveling and touring, is, I mean, I guess it's not only the touring, it's also the different musical directions, but you decide that touring is not necessarily your thing because you have a job at home that, that was earning you decent money, and so you decide that you're going to give that up. But you're not going to give up music. You just want to... You don't want to tour at this point. I want to pay my mortgage. Okay, so how do you come to terms with following the, following your dream to continue playing music and, and hopefully making a bigger name for yourself, knowing that you have a bit of a chance to make a bigger name for yourself with Little Ed's band or Little Ed and the Imperials, and you decide that's, that's not what you could do? I didn't want, you know, the trouble because it was a lot of trouble at the time. <laughs> okay, well, that makes sense, too. But also, I decided to start Dave Weld and the Imperial Flames. And I, I went to Little Ed and said, do you mind if I called my band the Imperial Flames? And he said, no, you know, it's a good idea. Because I wanted people to know all the work I did with Little Ed and the Blues Imperials that we came from being a $7 a night band to an international band and recording for Alligator. You know, as a four piece, as a team, we did that. Right. I wanted everybody to know, well, Dave went on and formed his own band and it's maybe trying to be some similar music and trying to do some of the similar things. And uh, that first band is, uh, yeah, Ted was my drummer, Ted Harvey. And I got Mike Scharf and Harry Yassine on piano. Okay, so saying that this is what you want to do, knowing what you want to do, and knowing that this connection between your work with Little Ed and now your new band, how different was the reality of starting your own new band and trying to uh, continue whatever it was he had started? It hadn't sunk into me. It never really sank into me for <laughs> till it, it didn't sink in. The reality didn't sink in. I just thought of it as a big adventure. It's an act of will. And, and uh, uh, it's something I wanted. And, and so we were going to places and play, you know, and if we were fired, you know, we just look for the next place. 
you know, and, and I just, you know, kept learning and practicing, you know, that would be, you know, and it was fun. And, and after, you know, after each gig, we felt happy and like we really did something. And of course, we thought we were further than we were, you know. We, I thought, you know, well, you know, I was with Little Ed. I played with all these great guys, you know. I'm really doing something. And, you know, in the scheme of things, <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I was pretty insignificant as far as uh, there were some people that knew about me and knew what I was doing. and you know, said, keep going. And, but, you know, the world didn't just open up to me and say, oh, you've decided to come, you know, here's a booking agent, here's a manager, here's a record company. No, uh-uh. But, so, but I did what I, I'm used to doing. I took everybody in the studio and recorded my first CD. And that was on Parsifal Records out of Belgium. It was called Rough Rockin' in Chicago. And I, I followed the model, which I had been taught. I recorded at Streeterville. And because uh, Bruce and I and Ed had recorded at Streeterville, so I recorded at Streeterville. I used Ted Harvey. I used Harry. I used Mike Scharf. And then I used uh, Little Ed, too, because at that time, Little Ed had been fired for the first time from Alligator you know, for missing gigs. Right. So he, he had joined my band and, and he was with my band for two years and we recorded that and, and did tours and played gigs. Then he went back to the Blues Imperials. And then I got more of a start on leg up because being with Ed always helped me. It's always exciting to be with little Ed because he's a great guy and he's a great musician. I mean, you guys worked together on and off for a while, right? Well, the next one came about five or six years after that, or four years. He was fired for the second time from Bruce. And Bruce had even sent a notice out to the public. Uh, Dear public, Ed Williams has retired from music. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, it seemed kind of funny to me because he was playing in my band every weekend, you know? <laughs> so Ed, you know, I, I guess Bruce was trying to save face, you know. Then we started working on a new CD and touring. And this one ended up with Michael Frank of Earwig Records. And it was called Keep On Walking. And we toured for a couple of years on that. Toured much better. At this point, um, you, do you still have your mortgage and how does that work out? Like, is that, are things different then that you could tour a lot more or uh, how, how do you view your world at that point? If you don't mind me asking. I had, I had a, a three unit building. That's the building I was trying to pay off. Right. So I had two rents coming in and I stayed in the third one for free. So Ed stayed there with me a lot of times, you know, when he had no place, he stayed with me. And so, and we tour from there, you know, and uh, it, it was pretty good. But so you weren't tied down to your job with Sears at that point. You could go on and tour. No, I had been out of Sears, you know, for a while at that point, you know, for a while. So are you thinking that you're now a full-time musician and that's all your focus? 
yeah, that's all I'm going to do. And that was in the early 90s, around then. And then we played, and this one came out. And then he went back to Alligator. And he got his same guys back again. And they're great guys. But I replaced Ed with Ab Locke, hmm. who was a wonderful guy. And I had, at that time, I had Bernard Reed on bass and Jeff Taylor on drums. And Bernard Reed was the guy that he played on all those million dollar hits. He, he played, uh, he, he played with everybody, Jackie Robinson, Percy Mayfield, uh, uh, Jackie Wilson, like I say, and uh, Tyrone Davis, he played on all those hits. And he, he was uh, well known. So Bernard needed a place and he, I put him up in the attic. So I, and, and then Jeff started to stay in the attic too. They had different ends of the attic. And uh, so we had the band, you know, and we toured. And then Ab was a wonderful guy. I'm, Ab had his place on the South side, uh, which he bought and paid for, you know, he scrimped. And he was a, a great sax player. So we toured as that unit for a long time. And then eventually, my mom was sick. And I was taking care of her with Monica, who was our lead singer, of course. Right. And I was taking care of, and we brought my mom to a, a pancake house on the north side. And sitting behind us, who was it? It was Bob Kester, who knew me and I knew him, but we started talking. I was, and uh, I kept calling him and he said, yeah, you can record for me. Because he always recorded people that kept themselves busy and hustled up their gigs and had a lot of gigs. And I was known for hustling gigs. I would sit in my little office and hustle gigs five, five hours every day call people, hi, my name is Dave. I got a blues band, you know. We'll do a great job for you, you know. I recorded with Alligator, blah, blah, you know. And, and uh, whatever I had to tell them, you know, and I get that gig. I, I had books and books I would go to for people to call and I would just hustle gigs all day, every day. And it worked for, to get Bob interested, you know. And Bob had known me, he almost had taken my first record that went to Parsifal, but he didn't take it. And how it got to Parsifal was a guy named Andre Hobus, who's a, a reviewer for Soulbag Magazine. He brought it to Parsifal and they accepted it, that, that first one. But this one, uh, then we recorded for Michael Frank, Keep On Walking. Then I met Bob, you know, while taking care of my mom, we decided, yeah, let's do Burning Love. What, what came to be called Burning Love. But that was a good CD, you know, my first Delmark CD. And we had Little Ed as a special guest, but it was, you know, and we had to audition for Delmark. It was Steve Wagner, and uh, I came in with my band, and uh, we played some of my original songs, and then loved them. And then Ab said, let me do one. And he, he played Help. You know, Help Me, you know, Sonny Boy. 
And the, and the guy said, no, we want to hear more original Dave Weld songs. And, and so that's what happened. You know, they wanted original songs because that's their business model. Right. Bob Kester had told me all about that, uh, you know, early on that the industry is dying because there's no more, uh, you know, like the thrill is gone, you know, real big hits for the blues. And so he always, he, he just made sure that it would be original. And so he get, you know, and this was my habit and this was mine and little Ed's habit. And this was J.B. Hutto's habit to write our own songs. And this is what we do. You know, this, however good or bad it is, we put our heart into it. And J.B. told me, write songs like you're a full grown man, you know. He, that's what he said, you know. Do you, do you have a philosophy in the way you write and what you write about? Well, I, I do what other writers do. I, I have to I have to write about something I know about. I can't just pick a subject. Well, this would be good. You know, that's popular, you know, nowadays, blah, blah. You know, it was popular when Black Lives was rioting, you know. Uh, it would be popular. That would be a popular subject. COVID would be popular. I don't want to write about those things. I want to write about what means something to me. And so on this latest CD, the latest album, it's called Nightwalk on Delmark. I took those songs that were instrumental to me of JB's that we talked about, his 78s, you know, a couple of his 78s. And I described how much I liked him to JB and he explained about the songs. And then I had a rhythm, <laughs> which I kept all my rhythms from that time I used to stay home from Little Ed's gig to play in my living room. I kept those rhythms. And, and one of those is now called uh, Don't Ever Change Your Ways. And it's a tribute to J.B. Hutto. And it's my original rhythm pattern. It's kind of like a country. Uh, it's not a country. It's got a backbeat, you know, but it, it's got an interesting uh, rhythm bass pattern, you know. And uh, it's something nobody else does. It's in, within the blues, you know? And so I take these rhythm patterns and I save them, you know? Just like uh, Bob Dylan, when he first recorded, he did some good stuff, but he saved Blown in the Wind for his next recordings. He saved, you know, Don't Think Twice It's All Right for, you know, like a Rolling Stone, he saved those. And, and that's what I've been doing this whole time. Uh, you know, and so that's, that's a rhythm pattern. It came out on Parsifal uh, back in the early 80s. But I redid it, all the words, you know, and made it a tribute to JB, uh, how JB taught me. And, and it's, it's one of the really hot songs on the CD. You know, it's rocking. You also do JB songs, do you not, on all your albums? Yeah. Tell me what... Tell me, I mean, you've pretty well spoken about it, but tell me what JB means to you. Well, he believed in me and he was my friend and he defended me. Uh, and, and he took me into his home, you know. He was just a real good guy. And, and I just, uh, I loved him and for that. 
you know, uh, I told him that I was in the 1815 club and I was talking to this one girl and uh, this guy came up and was going to kick my ass because I was talking to a black woman. And uh, JB said, man, I wish I'd have been there. I would have tore his ass up. You know, you know, he defended me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he brought me into clubs and, you know, with his band and, and had me sit in. And one time uh, we were at Teresa's and I went in to sit in with his band and I had, I didn't have my guitar cord went out. So I got up on stage and not a, I couldn't, not a note came from my guitar and the crowd was mad at me and pissed off. And JV said, don't worry about it. And then, then, you know, six months later, he played at blues on Halstead and, uh, I came to sat in and his band members said, what if, what if, what if it happens again? I heard him talking to him. What if it happens again where that, where he doesn't play a thing, you know? And he goes, don't worry about it. And I got up and I knocked him out. And JB said, hundred percent, man, you did a hundred percent, you know, and, and that, you know, what the hell, you know, <laughs> where are you going to get that from a guy like JB, you know? For sure. Well, it's it's nice the way you tri pay tribute to him. It's nice the way you continue to pay tribute to him and write a song in tribute to him. I, I want to continue with you know with that tradition, you know. And I usually choose. I've chosen his recordings from Chance Records. You know, the, his first seventy-eights by Art uh, Art owned the company and Chance Records and Homesick you know, was on it and JB's first recordings were on there and they're raw, man. If you hadn't heard them, you, you got to listen to them that, you know, pork chops on there with a washboard. He's, you know, and, and they're, they're raw. And Johnny Jones is on piano on a couple and uh, George Mayweather, Earring George. And they're good recordings. They're just so vibrant. And it's hard to make out what JB's saying, you know, but he says real honest things, you know. Looking back, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but you have a new album out. Are you where you wanted to be musically when you when you thought I should leave Little Ed because I have some great ideas of my own? Have you have you been able to capture those ideas like you had hoped? Yeah. Yeah, I can do better, though. Uh, but yes, I have like uh, slip into a dream. Uh, Maybe right and maybe wrong, and and one especially uh, tremble tremble that was original rhythm pattern by me. Uh, these are all things I've recorded, and and, uh, and so I have a few more up my sleeve though. And this last CD is uh, produced by Tom Hambridge because we decided to make the effort. Okay, it took me all these years to have these, you know, patterns, patterns and the lyrics and, and to sing them well enough. And of course I used Monica to sing them well enough because she gets my patterns too, because that's how we partner up. Uh, she, she's really good with lyrics and poetry and I'm really good with rhythm patterns. So we went ahead and 
and did our, our best material. And we spent some money and got Tom and we recorded it in Chicago and we mixed it in Nashville with Tom. And, and then we came up and offered it to Delmark. They accepted it. And then they helped mix it even better. And then LBO bought original artwork for the cover from an artist and it's beautiful. And then we had Frank Hadley write the liner notes. Frank Hadley, a uh, uh, downbeat music writer. And, and he wrote the liner notes. And so this is, this to, it's, you know, it's okay. You know, it's pretty tops in my, uh, in my career. It's pretty tops. And we have the most interesting stuff, you know, of my career. And the album's called Night Walk. Is the cover supposed to be like the, I don't know what that thing is called on, underneath. The, it's called the, Lower, Lower Wacker Nightmare. It's a, it's a great album cover. Yeah, it's all distorted. and. Yeah. Um, Dave, thank you so much for doing this. Well, you're a nice guy, man. It was nice well, to I, meet you in Pennsylvania. Wasn't that cool? Yeah, yeah, it was cool. Mm -hmm. I hope we bump into each other again. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, man. Thank you very much. All right. You take care. All right. Take care.